Welcome back to the last night of School of Ministry. Ever. Not ever, just uh, for tonight, hopefully. Uh, looking, Wrapping up salvation history, Lord willing. Uh, we're going to try and get all the way through tonight. I don't know if we can do that. Uh, if not, we will wrap up the rest on video. But let's jump in and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to look into your word. We pray that, God, our hearts would be shaped by it. Uh, we pray, Lord, you'd speak to us through your word. Uh, we ask, oh God, that you'd be with uh, Tim Miller as he's getting x-rays after being in an accident. Uh, just pray, Lord, for your hand of healing to be with him. We thank you, Lord, that you were protecting him. Uh, we just pray you touch his body in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're following along in the teaching notes, we're at the top of page 184. Looking at passages that bear witness to another prophetic hope for God's people that involves the Holy Spirit. So we have Numbers 11, uh, where the Lord says to Moses, gather up 70 men of Israel to oversee the administration of the camp. And uh, the little interaction between God and Moses on that, which culminates uh, verse 29, but Moses said to them, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So it's, uh, we're right from the beginning of being introduced to the prophet in Old Testament scriptures. Uh, we are kept from the cult of personality. Uh, it's not about the person. Uh, the desire is that all people would uh, hear from the Lord, would Press into the Lord and speak on behalf of him. Joel chapter 2, uh, 28 and 29, it will come to pass afterwards that God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. On my servants, male and female, I will pour out my spirit. And we find that echoed in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the early church and they point back to Joel to and say this is what we are seeing one of the classic problems in biblical theology is how we relate the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers under the old covenant with the work of the Spirit in the lives of believers in the new covenant so since a remnant of the old covenant saints did believe in God and obey him many scholars presume that the Spirit must have indwelt Old Covenant Saints. The following passages from the Gospel of John, however, cause a problem with that theory, a problem with that hypothesis at the beginning. John 7, 39. Now this is he, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So had the Spirit been given yet? No. Uh, John 14, 16 and 17. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him and knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 20, 21 and 22. Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. To deny that the Spirit regenerates Old Covenant saints, however, also causes a massive theological problem. Uh, this one isn't just easily solved by choosing one side or the other. 
so how do we resolve the tension between those two theological presuppositions? Uh, all right, so here's, here's one attempt. This is from James Hamilton, Jr. Seeking to explain how Old Covenant believers were empowered by faith, I will argue that indwelling is not to be equated with regeneration. This distinction opens the possibility that Old Covenant believers experienced regeneration by the Spirit, even though the Spirit did not then take up residence within them. Some scholars hesitate to use the term regenerate in reference to Old Covenant believers because Old Testament does not use the new birth, quote-unquote, and made-alive language found in the New Testament. As noted above, the Old Testament metaphor for this is circumcision of the heart. Since both regeneration and heart circumcision refer to God's enabling people who are dead in sin to believe and obey, I will regard the two expressions as functionally equivalent. Thus, Old Covenant believers may be described as regenerate, though not indwelt. They become believers when the Spirit of God enables them to believe. They were maintained in faith by God's covenant presence with the nation as he dwelt in the temple. It will be argued here that prior to Jesus' glorification, God sanctified believers by his presence with them rather than in them. That's a really helpful distinction. Uh, we find throughout the Old Covenant God's presence descending upon an individual or upon a gathering of individuals uh, for uh, speaking, for enabling, for guidance, and then often that presence was lifted. But it's in those moments of descending that he is pointing them in the right direction. You're going to find that uh, specifically when it comes to language in the Old Covenant talking about the tabernacle, uh, which was all about worship and how men are to worship God, the tabernacle being a pre- cursor to the temple worship that is coming, all the sacrificial system that is coming, all of which is pointing us to class Christ, right? So Jesus, the Sunday school answer. Uh, so what we find is a descending presence of God pointing them towards Jesus and then ascending again. It's not until Jesus comes. It's not until the Holy Spirit is poured out that we say that God is not just with us, but in us. Uh, it is a glorious time to believe and trust in God. Anyways, that's, uh, there's more to that that's in here, but I, I think uh, that is sufficient for just saying, let, let's be careful with absolutes when it comes to uh, saying it's either this or that, and really set our hope in the fact that uh, God does accomplish salvation. He accomplished it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all by the means of faith in Christ. Okay? One of the most important passages in the entire Bible about the Holy Spirit is Romans 8. This text pulls together much of what we have studied, not only in this lesson, but in the entire course, which is why we're going to read the whole thing, Romans 8, 1 through 17. One of you want to read that for us? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So remember that this is just the first half of Romans 8, right? Uh, but contrast it with what we were just talking about. How did salvation come in the old covenant? What did, what did interaction with the Spirit of God, the enabling to live obedient lives, what did that look like in the old covenant? Uh, well, you, you see references in here to the law. Uh, you see a desire to keep the law of God and yet an inability in human flesh to do so and again it is the gift of God and salvation it's the Holy Spirit enabling his people to believe and obey that's going to culminate in the end of this chapter that those whom he has called he has justified those he's justified he sanctified even though we're still in the process of sanctification he says it's done and those he sanctified he glorified we haven't even started the process of glorification but he says it's done not so in the old covenant what was the language uh, of circumcision was be faithful or i will cut you off right that was the that was the picture of circumcision if you're not faithful if you're not obedient i will cut you off and now he says uh, i have finished it start to finish like it it is all completed in christ all right so now that the Spirit indwells those who believe in Jesus, there is no hope or expectation, is there no hope or expectation that remains to be fulfilled? Biblical theology of the Spirit is not completed until the Spirit's role in the new heaven and new earth is considered. So, I don't know, like I don't know about you, but just in my life personally, I feel like he's got a lot of work to do. <laughs> This is definitely not job over. Oh, what a challenge I am. Uh, Richard Gaffin Jr. says this, typically the work of the Spirit has been viewed individualistically as a matter of what God is doing, quote, in my life, in the inner life of the believer without any particular reference or connection to God's eschatological purposes. We only have to ask, how many believers today recognize that the present work of the Spirit within the church and in their lives 
is of one piece with God's great work of restoring the entire creation, begun in sending his son in the fullness of time uh, to the consummated, uh, consummation at his return. How many Christians grasp that in union with Christ, the life-giving spirit, the Christian life in its entirety is essentially and necessarily the resurrection life? Well, hopefully the ones who come to Eden Worship Center regularly because that was the entire ending of our study in the book of Genesis. Uh, from creation to end, we were made to be part of this. Even if we never see it play out in our lifetime, uh, we live and we die trusting in hope that we are part of this process, that God is at work. In the new heavens and new earth, we await the fullness of life and joy. We also await the fullness of something else. Consider the following passage about the Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Uh, that word guarantee that's in there uh, is that Greek word araban, translated in the ESV as guarantee. It's translated in other versions as the pledge or first installment or down payment. Peter O'Brien says the Holy Spirit by whom the Gentiles were sealed when they believed the gospel is now called the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Behind this translation lies the word that signifies a down payment or a pledge and which in the New Testament is used only in Pauline writings and always with reference to the Spirit of God. Originally of Semitic origin, this word in Hellenistic Greek became the ordinary commercial term for a down payment or first installment. According to 2 Corinthians 1.22, the Corinthians received the down payment of the Spirit to guarantee the consummation of their future salvation. Their longing for the heavenly dwelling results from the certainty that they have been provided with an advance installment of the Spirit. And so here in verse 14, the Spirit Received is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. In giving him to us, God is not simply promising us for our final inheritance, but actually providing us with a foretaste of it, even if it is only a small fraction of the future endowment. Uh, one more note on this word here uh, from Harold Horner. This word is sometimes translated pledge, but this is really inaccurate because the pledge is returned when the full payment is made, whereas this is a portion of the whole payment. Uh, so I, I think that it's just a little bit of a helpful distinction. Uh, this isn't me putting, it, it's like when you go someplace and you have to give your credit card, or you have to give your driver's license. The expectation is I'm going to get this back. It, no, this is a foretaste of what we will have for all eternity. And then Paul goes, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has believed what God has in store for us, but God has revealed it to us. And it, it, it's this beautiful thing. When I was younger, we would, uh, we had a song that we would sing that was basically this giant, no eye has seen, no, it, it was like, we have no idea how glorious it is because we had no idea how to read in context the next verses that say, but God has revealed it to us. He's not going to snatch it back from us. 
uh, for all eternity, we will have the fullness of the Spirit that we have only in portion right now. All right. Lesson 11, Our God Reigns. Introduction. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Acts 11 verse 18. By including the Gentiles as Gentiles in the new covenant people, purified simply by faith in Jesus, God has done an unexpected and wonderful thing. And I think we'll just say again in this session for us and 98% for Josiah. Uh, biblical theology in studying God's unfolding plan. I, by the way, if you're listening to this and you don't know Josiah, uh, he's my son-in-law who found out that he has 2% Jewish origin. So I don't mean he's 98% saved. We're still watching on the rest. It was just, <laughs> as ju it occurred to me in saying that. Yeah, somebody might go like, mm, I don't know. So much for he saves to the uttermost, 98%. <laughs> All right, uh, so God has done an unexpected and wonderful thing. Biblical theology, by studying God's unfolding plan, highlights this turning point in redemptive history for us. Although we might take it for granted, this surprising development took the early church time to digest. It's why when we read accounts of Orthodox Jewish believers really having trouble with this integration with Gentiles, we should maybe be a little bit more gracious to them uh, as opposed to just following the cancel culture in which we live in going any remnant of the past just makes you a terrible, terrible person rather than it pointing us to sanctification, which it ought to. All right. Uh, so look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Saul's conversion and, and oh man, uh, there's a lot of confusion about that. Uh, Paul is just the Greek version of his name. Uh, he starts off as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he describes himself. And so Saul would be his Hebrew name. Uh, but he then, by the end of his ministry, describes himself as the Gentile to... Nope, the apostle to the Gentile. I gave you the fill in the blank because I was wanting to lead up to it. And then I just I nailed it. Uh, as the apostle to the Gentiles, in a Greek-speaking world, he would then be... Paul, uh, kind of like if you have a, a friend from south of the border whose name is Jesus, uh, we say Jesus around here. And let's be honest, we don't name our kids Jesus around here. Okay, enough on that. I feel like I've sidetracked myself. Uh, that's all that's going on with Paul's name. Uh, it's not some great uh, symbolic thing of in the old he was Saul, but now he's changed and he's Paul. A change of, no, no. He hung out with Greek people and they said his name different. That's what happened. Okay. Uh, we will begin our study of Paul's life by examining the text in Acts and in Paul's letters, which describe what Paul was like before his conversion. One of you want to read Acts 9 and then a maybe another one, Acts 22. Okay. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. But Ananias answered, Lord, well, no, we jump to verse 13. But Ananias answered, <laughs> Lord, 
I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Acts 22, starting in verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were with, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. All right, so we find the account of Paul's conversion there. Uh, at the end of Acts, in Acts 26, verses 4 and 5 and 9 through 12, uh, he's going to be recounting again the story of his life, uh, pointing out again that he spent zealously the early years of his life persecuting the followers of Jesus uh, until he has that encounter with Christ, at which point things radically begin to change. Uh, so we find in his letters, Paul occasionally reflects on his former life and his conversion uh, in Galatians 1 11 through 17 in Philippians 3 3 through 11 1 Timothy 1 12 through 17 do you have those listed in your handout let me read it one more time so you can just jot them down Galatians 1 11 through 17 Philippians 3 3 through 11 1 Timothy 1 12 through 17 I, I mean, it's going to lead him to make the case again and again and again. Uh, you find this in 1 Timothy 1. It's a trustworthy saying, deserving a full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds this tagline, of whom, among whom I am the foremost. Uh, there, there's just this resonance within his life of his former sin, former thoughts, former actions. Uh, that is, uh, like David said, my sin is always before me, but not in a way that it stands condemning him. Uh, he is forever reminded of the power of the gospel. And therefore, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because that's the power of salvation uh, for all who believe. Paul's conversion uh, is first told to us in Acts 9. The narrative in the book of Acts then shifts back to Peter. For most of Acts 10 through 12, but then in Acts 13, the book describes the calling of Paul and Barnabas on what gets called their first missionary journey. Nevertheless, it appears as if Paul and Barnabas are concentrating their message on Jews and proclaiming Jesus primarily in the synagogue. You find that in Acts 13, verse 5 and verse 16. Uh, as we pick up the narrative in Acts 13, Paul is preaching his sermon to the Jews and the God-fearers in Antioch in Poseidon. One of you want to read that passage, Acts 13, 42 through 52. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, 
it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the, of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Awesome. So this passage gives us the shift that happens. Uh, it is Paul and Barnabas's ministry. I'm trying to hurry through. And then you stumble over words. And it, Barney, Paul and Barney. Uh, but primarily, we're going to find this to be Paul's shift. He is the one who is the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, compare that with Isaiah 49, spoken beforehand, as well as Luke 2. Uh, Isaiah 49, 5-6, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. So Jacob and Israel uh, being synonyms of God's people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, verse 6, Is it too light a thing that you should be a servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In Luke 2, 27 through 32, uh, this is Simeon's blessing. They come into the temple to dedicate Jesus according to the law and he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said Lord now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and your glory to the people of Israel uh, and again in Acts 26 22 to 23 uh, we find references that it is both to the Jews and to the Gentiles uh, this is significant because up to this point in biblical history uh, gentiles were only included as they became jews that you had to convert to judaism you had to convert to following uh, the god of israel if you were going to be included in the covenant people and now uh, all of that it's like the holy spirit has just sidestepped it in the last lesson we mentioned acts 1 verse 8 establishing a framework for the books of acts <clears throat> the book of Acts, compare the following list of passages, trying to discern how these passages might reveal an intentional structure within the book and within God's unfolding plan of redemption. So uh, I'm going to try and read these quickly, but listen for what is the structure uh, that it reveals. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Acts 8, 14 and 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent <clears throat> to them Peter and John. They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for that he had not yet fallen on any of them. but They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. One <clears throat> uh, of you want to read Acts 19, 1 through 10 before I choke to death here. Yeah. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All right, so do a little comparison here. Uh, we just had Paul and Barney, just for the sake of saying it. Now it's going to stick in my head. Uh, going to the synagogue and preaching, declaring the word, and they begged them, let us hear this. Next time we gather in the synagogue. Well, now, by Acts 19, where is it that he's preaching? At the end of it? Yeah. The Hall of Tyrannus? Yeah. Not in a synagogue at all. Right? right? He's, just, he's just in a public space. He's in some public Greek hall. Like, Tyrannus is not a good Jewish name. This is, this is some Greek space that they are in, some secular space that they are in. And he's going to hang out there. For two years, until all the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is a really significant change that has happened here. Uh, let's make sure we don't gloss by that. Uh, the last text to consider is this very abbreviated survey of the ministry of Paul and the book of Acts in the last passage of the book of Acts. So, uh, Tony, you want to read for us Acts 28, 23 to 31. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So given the fact that this class is called School of Ministry, <laughs> this is a little bit off the point, but look at verses 23 and 24. You just need to put these in your pocket for your life. Uh, they appoint a day, they come to him. From morning, and here's where, where it starts, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Uh, if you're doing something morning to evening, are you just doing it at your convenience when it is easy and comfortable for you? No. 
No, there, there's a, a long hours dedication to serving other people. But what is he doing? He's working really hard attempting to convince them. It, it, when you look at Paul's life, uh, read the book of Romans. It is so logical. One argument built on another argument, built on another argument, built on another argument. Uh, he is systematic in his thought, working that he might convince them from not his own wisdom, but scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then comes verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said and others disbelieved. <laughs> this is bad news for you, mate. Uh, it's actually really good news because salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, but you will work really hard and diligent and well in other people's lives and have, have said all the right things at all the right times. And some God will quicken to belief and some God will harden their hearts and they will disbelieve. And that just belongs to God. But you have to know that going in or else you will just constantly beat yourself up. What? is wrong with me maybe i should find a different job maybe maybe i here's what you do either i'm terrible or they're terrible now if we're gonna be honest uh paul sort of turns this one as he does many things uh, the people's hearts have grown dull and their ears can barely right he's not exactly generous with his words here uh which i don't think gives us liberty to be like your hearts are dull you're stupid. You reject the prophets. That's your fathers did. <laughs> all right, don't go all Stephen on them. But uh, anyways, know that it's going to call for a lot of hard work and mixed results. All right. So where's Paul at the end of the book of Acts? Uh, why might the book end abruptly this way? Uh, why doesn't it end with the death of Paul, for example? Well, by the end of the book, Paul's in the capital city of Rome, uh, the symbol of worldly power and opposition to the kingship of Jesus. Nevertheless, here is he is there preaching the gospel with boldness and without hindrance. Derek Block says this, Luke's story is that the gospel reaches Rome and is carried on the start of its journey to the ends of the earth. God sovereignly and powerfully brings the word to the capital of the world on a long and arduous journey from Jerusalem. This journey has been coupled with unjust suffering and bold witness. As ironic as this combination may sound, it means triumph for the message of the kingdom and the Lord Jesus. Luke's message is this, be reassured, the unhindered progress of God's word about salvation to all people is occurring by God's direction fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the long-revealed promise of Scripture to Israel, despite opposition, God is the hero of Acts. And the plot line is how he reveals his word through Jesus and a faithful church. God will make sure it happens, and so we'll have a faithful church. <clears throat> All right, so salvation history, the fill-in-the-blanks for you there. Paul was saved by God's grace, grace being the fill-in-the-blank, the first one there. For God's mission to the Gentiles, the book of Acts describes the spread of the gospel through the Roman Empire. Along the way, the gospel crosses ethnic lines, 
making it clear that God is creating a new people composed of Jews and Gentiles. The story of Acts ends with the triumph of the gospel in the heart of the pagan capital. God is establishing his kingdom over all earthly rule and authorities and filling the earth with the glory, with his glory through the gospel. What is the main thread of biblical theology that runs throughout scripture? God is putting his glory on display before a watching world. All right, the mission and suffering of the Apostle Paul. Thus far in this lesson, we have quickly surveyed Paul's conversion and his ministry, at least according to the book of Acts. Now let's turn and consider uh, his mission and his apostolic suffering by looking mostly at his own writings. So let's look first at what Paul said in the book of Romans, which it says many theologians regard as his most important letter. It is his most important letter, <laughs> uh, even though I, I love the book of Ephesians. But Ephesians makes sense because Romans makes the case for it. All right, uh, let's just read these off. And if we can just have some people read these out, Romans 1, 1 through 5, Romans 15, 15 to 22, 21, Romans 16, 25 to 27. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations. But, Romans 15, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of God, Christ Jesus, to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to uh, Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as, but as it is written, those who have those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who will have never heard will understand. And Romans sixteen or something. <clears throat> now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, <clears throat> and through the prophetic writing has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. <clears throat> to the only, oh, sorry, to the only wise God be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Alright, so according to those passages, as Paul's describing his own ministry, what is the purpose that Paul sees for his ministry? And how does that fit in with the broader biblical theology we've been talking about? Preach the gospel? Yeah, preach the gospel. Specifically to those who have not heard. Specifically to those who have not heard, and more and more, what group of people is that? Gentiles. Gentiles, Gentiles, right? So uh, the thread of biblical theology is that God saves a family for himself, and it's not just a family. He's doing that as a prototype that he might save people from every family around the world, that uh, he will be a light to the Gentiles. And now Paul says... My job is to call the Gentiles to obedience and faith. Right? So that's, that's sort of the thrust of uh, Paul's ministry, where it's going. A couple other examples of God's cosmic plan for the gospel and salvation. Ephesians 3, 7 through 12 of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. All right, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 18, uh, Paul also describes similarly the call of the Holy Spirit to bring obedience of the Gentiles and his ministry as well. All right, so how does Paul's ministry differ from Moses' ministry? If they're all about the glory of God being put on display, what, what's the, the difference in those two? <laughs> Moses was more of a cult leader. And Paul was a missionary. And Paul was a missionary. So why was Moses a cult leader? The people followed him around. Okay, that, that wasn't what I was thinking. But yeah, yeah, people followed him around, looking to him as the oracle. Uh, Paul was a bit of a lightning rod. You either loved him or hated him. You either got him or thought he was confusing. Uh, what, was, what was the main thrust of Moses's ministry what what is the enduring legacy we have from the five books that Moses gave us the law. the law right which we're told in the New Testament no one is made righteous by the law so the law doesn't actually make us right it condemns us it, it points out points out where we are wrong uh, what is the main thrust of Paul's ministry Yeah, yeah, the gospel, a new covenant, a new law. So if he is there to call the Gentiles to obedience in faith, is he calling them to obedience in the law? No. At least not the Jewish ceremonial law, right? 
uh, all of that completed in Christ. Now, he's going to call them uh, to faithfulness to God's moral law, the, the overriding principles of all of the earth. And yet he's going to say, you can be adopted into this family because Christ has accomplished all of that on your behalf. Right? It, it's not a, a Pharisee adoption. It is a grace adoption that Christ has accomplished. Yeah, Aiden. With having the law in mind, do we know where Paul would have stood on the ruling of the council when they decided Gentiles could now be included and they were like, you can't eat chicken, don't drink blood, gross. (laughs) Do you know where Paul Right, so where did Paul stand on uh, Council of Jerusalem's verdict when uh, Gentiles are coming in, they they said, "Don't don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat meat that has the blood still in it." Um, sexual immorality, the other part. Yeah, yeah. So we we have a mingling there of the moral law of God and the Jewish ceremonial law, and it seems like. At one point in Paul's ministry, he's willing to go along with the Jewish ceremonial part. Uh, So far as he goes, is it Timothy that he takes and has circumcised? I think, do I have that right? Uh, That's a significant step, right? Uh, And then later on, uh, he's going to refuse to do that. In fact, say, if you do go get circumcised, your faith is worthless to you. So it almost seems like there, there's a little bit of a progression in Paul where uh, in the early days, remember I said we have, to, we have to come with grace to people who are making a rather significant change for the first time in all of Israel's history. But by the end of Paul's ministry, we don't find that same level of grace. He's like, nope, if you do that, you've lost it all. In fact, you never had it. Uh, so where exactly he stood probably depended on where in his timeline he stood on that. That would just be my guess. All right. So the proclamation of the gospel and the ministry of the Spirit were for Paul always joined with suffering. The first account of Paul's conversion and commissioning, we hear these fateful words from the Lord Jesus. Acts nine fifteen to 16. But the Lord said, Go, for he is my chosen instrument, to carry my name among the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's a great commissioning right there. Just <laughs> love to have that read at your ordination. All right, so throughout the book of Acts, these words are confirmed as Paul suffers in the spread of the gospel. So it, we have a couple accounts here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10, uh, where he mentions great endurance in affliction and hardship and calamities, beating, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, purity of knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, giving genuine love. Uh, just this ongoing thing, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Uh, all of Paul's ministry came with a price tag attached to it. Also interesting that Paul uh, uniquely, at least uh, as far as what we're told expressly among the apostles, uh, continued to pay his way. Uh, Where he's going to go, 
you know that we lived among you and I did my job and I, I didn't ask a penny from you for myself. I didn't take anything from you while I was there. Uh, just kind of an interesting, at least with one church example, that's what happened there, that, that Paul continues to suffer and work for the opportunity to share the gospel. I, that's, a, that's a good reminder in school of ministry, especially in a day and age where some people go, unless I get paid to share the gospel, unless it's my job, yeah, I don't have time. Paul had a job so that he could pay for the opportunity to share the gospel. Interesting balance there. Particularly instructive in Paul's description of his suffering in ministry, we find Colossians 1, 24 through 26. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking. Here's a problematic verse if we're not careful. I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that is given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in the saints. So this unusual phrase, filling up what is lacking, finds its only close parallel when we look at Scripture, especially uh, the New Testament, in Philippians 2, verse 30. So uh, picking up at the end of 29, so I received from him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So how is Paul filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, Colossians 1.24? And how does that suffering relate to his mission? Uh, we talked about this a little bit in our beginning as we looked at the God-centered life. Both Colossians 1 and Philippians 2, uh, what is lacking is the personal delivery of the gift, not anything to do with the gift, right? So uh, Christ's afflictions didn't go three quarters of the way, and now our affliction or Paul's affliction or some saint's affliction merits the rest of the way. Uh, that's a very Roman Catholic way to understand this. Uh, as opposed to, like we find it in Philippians 2, uh, there was a delivery method as God chose as the instrument to bring his gospel to people, other people. And Paul suffered greatly for the opportunity to be the UPS driver for the gospel. So he's not, he's not adding a single thing to what Jesus did on the cross. You're no more saved because of Paul's ministry uh, as if Jesus didn't do enough. It, everybody tracking with that? That's a really important point because if you don't get that one right, you can mess a lot of things up with 1 Corinthians one twenty four. As in fact, one denomination has for the past 2,000 years. Okay, good chat. Yet we must also consider that Jesus and Paul's example and what they might mean. Uh, John 15, 18 through 20 Acts 14, 21, and 22. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 13. And 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14. Uh, just I, for the sake of time, I'm just going to read that last one there. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, we don't add to the afflictions of Christ. We don't merit any more of God's acceptance of us or those who hear us or those who benefit from us and our ministry. Uh, it is fully and forever complete in Christ. And yet we rejoice that we get to share in his sufferings. We identify with him. So think back over redemptive history and some of the major events that we have traced and tracked a little bit in Israel's history. Uh, some examples. In the Exodus, we have the conquest of the promised land. We find the period of the judges. We have the rise of David, the establishment of Solomon's throne, the building of the temple, the defeat of the Assyrians during Hezekiah's reign, the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel, and the celebration of Hanukkah after the temple is cleansed. I, I just looked at the word Hanukkah and all I could get to come out of my brain was something related to Habakkuk. <laughs> nope, it's not it. Just shut up until it comes right. <laughs> candy cane. That's where candy cane came from. Hanukkah? Candy cane? Candy cane? All right. Uh, so salvation history, the purpose of Paul's ministry, the purpose of our ministry of the gospel today is to bring about the obedience of faith. That's exactly what Paul said was the point of his service. To bring about the obedience of faith to the glory of God. This is often done through suffering. Part of God's plan is that the suffering of Christ might be made known and demonstrated through the suffering of his people. Man, it's just a really helpful way to say it. We don't add to his suffering. We make known his suffering in ours. Because we recognize that the great lengths to which God in Christ has gone to love and redeem us, we do the same for others. And the world looks at it and goes, what is that? I don't understand how that works. It points to Christ. All right, let's take a five-minute break right there, and we'll uh, pick it up with some of the controversies in the early church in biblical theology. What is our hope in life and death? In Christ alone, in Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His commands? And what will keep us through?
Welcome back, everybody. Uh, so our sponsor for tonight, in the uh, graciousness of Tim and Becky Klingenberger, they had brought in some dang butterscotch root beer. How is it, everybody? Is it good? Dang! Dang! It's delicious. No, it's good. Good. That's our commercial for dang root beer. We figured we better point that out because it also kind of looks like there's a bunch of beer bottles on the uh, on the table. Although if we didn't say it, maybe like attendance would go up. I mean, I know this is a busy weekend. We normally have about twelve-ish people who show up, twelve to fifteen. We get like fifty people in the room. Got a keg in the corner. Hey, oh, of butterscotch root beer. <laughs> All right. Controver- Speaking of controversies, <laughs> controversies in the early church and biblical theology. So the epistles of the New Testament provide ample evidence of the problems and controversies that confronted the early church. Most, if not all, of these problems flowed from a faulty understanding of biblical theology or eschatology. So let's look at several of them. I think there's like five of them. Majority of the corrective teaching and encouragement of the New Testament epistles can be categorized under the broad reach of one of these five problems. Number one, a faulty understanding of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, specifically concerning justification and the place of the law in the new covenant. So we find Galatians 2, 15 to 21, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified by Christ, we too are found to be sinners, then is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Transgressor. <clears throat> Got to say the uh, <coughs> ORs like Albert Muller. Gresser. Uh, Muller, every time he says a word that ends in OR, transgress, transgressor. You guys don't care. You don't even care about what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified by with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So how's problem number one manifest in the text? What's Paul's basic response, it appears from this text and the letter to the Galatians as a whole that certain Jewish Christians were teaching that Gentiles must be circumcised, obey the law in order to be justified, a teaching which has connection with legalism in our day. And Paul calls that a false gospel. In fact, he he kicks it off in Galatians by saying, who has bewitched you? has turned you to another gospel, which is no gospel at all. All right, that's problem one. Here's problem two. A faulty understanding of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, specifically concerning God's faithfulness to Israel. Somebody want to read for us Romans 9, 4 through 8. 
Were you pointing at me or volunteering? Go it, it was me. Okay, I'm going. <laughs> Romans 9, 4 through 8. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. All right. Uh, just jot it down. We're not going to take time to read it, but Romans 11, uh, Paul speaks about the inclusion of Israel and uh, just has this beautiful capstone on the end of it in verse 28 as regards to the gospel they are enemies of God for your sake in other words he's making the argument uh, that it was God's sovereign election to get them stuck on Judaism get them stuck on the law so that the gospel might go to the Gentiles that Gentiles might be included by faith but he ends it with this but as regards to election they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers that they are still this chosen people of God, even though as individuals they may be apart from the covenant, and yet we've been adopted into their family rather than us uh, inviting them to come join us. Come join the Christian church because we're way smarter. Now, the Christian church has been made the true Israel, but you still need to join the Christian church. Okay, good. I feel like I said that in a confusing way. Problem number three, faulty understanding or practice of the new life of love that flows from the grace of God given in his son, Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, do not be deceived. And then he lists a giant list of sinners that are in there. And he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. James 2, 14 to 17, what good is a brother's if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that save him? Now, he's not arguing that we're saved by our works. He's arguing that our works that we do will be a real evidence of genuine life transforming faith that's internal. It's an external evidence of that which has already happened, as opposed to we work really hard in the external and then God saves us inside. James is saying it works opposite to that. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So it, it, John makes that same argument. Here, here's how we know that it, it's real on the inside when we see it lived out on the outside, right? Now, here's our problem. We can't see inside. So all we have is looking at the outside, looking at consistency of heart, being attitude of words and of behavior, which is why the church today practices church discipline. Uh, the administration of the sacraments and practicing church disciplines are uh, the two early marks that the reformers said uh, typified the true church because all we have is external. So if all we see from Tony is external unfaithfulness, what is it that we are called to think might be the case? Not saved, unregenerate. What do we want for Tony? We want him to be saved, right? And so we call him uh, through a season of excommunication, being cut off uh, from the communion of saints. And we practice communion how? 
by coming to the table of the Lord, right? Um, we say, please come every single Sunday, Tony. Like, we will never tell anybody, don't come on a Sunday. Unless, of course, I say that. And then I thought of one instance where I told someone not to come on a Sunday. But that was because of a restraining order. And that was a, that was a different matter altogether. But I encourage them to be part of a congregation every single Sunday. We want them to hear the gospel every week because we want them to come to faith and obedience in Christ, right? Anyways, okay, there you go. Problem number four, faulty understanding of the nature of Christ's return and resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, somebody want to read that for us? There's several verses in it. Now Christ is proclaimed as raised from the, the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In your okay, vain, hold on just hold on just a second. What's what faulty argument is he combating here in writing? Raising the dead. What about raising the dead? It's not possible. Never happened. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, is it talking specifically about, like, doing supernatural signs and seeing someone raised from the dead? Or is it talking about, like, the dead in Christ shall rise unto eternal life? B. B. And so what is, what's the argument? It feels like I'm asking a, a harder question than I thought it was here. Uh, basically, they're just saying, there is no resurrection. You're dead, you're dead, it's over. Right? And so he makes the argument... If that's true, then Christ is dead. Then Christ has not been raised, and you are still in your sins. You're a moron, right? That's basically the argument that he makes. All right, somebody read for us, uh, or at least start in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17. <clears throat> but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the, com until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. All right, so Paul lays out uh, the argument, the understanding, the orthodox understanding of what life after death, the resurrection, the afterlife, what that looks like. Uh, and I would say for a couple millennia, uh, Christians, especially in times of death and grief, have turned to that passage in particular to say, I don't know, I've never been there, but I'm going to plant all of my hope right here. Like right here. This is, this is the rock I'm going to stand upon. Uh, we find in 2 Th Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2 as well, uh, as well as 2 Timothy 2, 16 to 18, where it seems like a couple guys that Paul calls out by name, Hymenius and Philetus, have been... Uh, have swerved he he describes it for themselves they've swerved from the truth and they're they're leading other people astray 
he describes their teaching as spreading like gangrene. Like he names them by name as false teachers. And what they're saying is the resurrection has already happened. Oh, sorry, you missed it. That was last Sunday. Oh, you were camping last Sunday. Yep, you missed it. Sorry, Bob. Uh, and he says that this is a false teacher. And he, it, I think it's just important to notice that he calls them by name. There's a lot of people who go, if you do that, you're unloving, you're ungracious, uh, you're just an, an old angry person. Like, what does this have to do with you? Just go about your business. Uh, and there are some uh, who are teaching heretical things that are meant to be called out that they may not have their teaching spread like gangrene. It's a rather nasty, nasty analogy there. A little cut, a little infection that causes your entire limb to die and stink and rot and fall off. Man, we got whole branches of the church that are stinking and falling off the church. And their theology is spreading like wildfire throughout the church, whether it's liberal theology or... Uh, word of faith theology, just there's some scary stuff out there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Problem number five, fall the understanding of the pattern of life before the return of Christ. That is that glory is preceded by suffering. So uh, yes, Jesus is going to come. Yes, he will deliver his people. Uh, and it's going to be rather painful getting there. First Corinthians four, eight through 16 uh, he starts off by a little bit of condemnation. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share that rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all men, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted. We are homeless. We labor. We are working with our own hands. We revile. <clears throat> when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. That's, that's a really important phrase that he uses there. I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. Making someone feel guilty is manipulation. I'm going to assert my dominance over you. I'm going to make you feel guilty to manipulate you to do what I want. He says, I'm admonishing you. I'm, I'm humbling you. This is a verbal spanking that you are getting, not so you go sit in your room and cry and feel bad about yourself so that you can do better. Right? That's what Paul's aiming at. <clears throat> so he says, I urge you to be imitators of me. <laughs> you, you are rich. You are kings. You reign. You have all that you want. I'm poor. <laughs> you should imitate me. It's a really interesting argument that he makes. All right, I just jotted down here, Hebrews 10, 32 to 39. Concludes with, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. First Peter 2, 19 through 21. 
That's a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. And he's going to say, what credit is it if you suffer because you're an idiot, right? If you're sinning against other people, nothing. Uh, but if you are wrongly persecuted, especially persecuted for the name of Christ, uh, man, what a blessing you have when you follow his example, you walk in his steps. In Revelation 13, 5 through 10, uh, yeah, let's just have somebody read that one. Revelation 13, 5 through 10. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given, <clears throat> given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book <clears throat> of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. All right, salvation history. A deficient understanding of biblical theology caused many problems in the early church. Uh, thanks be to God for that, by the way. Otherwise, we would have uh, most of the New Testament epistles missing, and we would be in just as bad a shape. We are blessed because they struggled. Five primary ones. Uh, being a legalistic demand for law observance, Gentile boasting over the Jews, a licentiousness supposedly legitimized by grace, a misunderstanding of eschatology, an unwillingness to suffer and endure. These five problems correspond to five great realities of the new covenant, a total sufficiency of Christ's work, the offer of salvation to Jew and Gentile, newness of life in the Holy Spirit, and the hope of bodily resurrection and a future reward for God-exalting endurance. As you were saying that, I was thinking to myself... Everybody get those? Yeah. I, I was yeah. thinking to myself... There you go. Like, uh, um, you, you had made the comment that, thank goodness they had gone through those problems so that we are now better off in the sense that like the distinction is that needs to be made um, is that we're only better off in the sense that we have less of an excuse because <laughs> but it's still happening you yeah. know what I mean yeah. so we have less of an excuse because there's a there's an, a large biblical account to make this these easy fill in the blank statements uh, to be true but it's Sadly, it's still happening all over. Absolutely. Yeah. What does licentiousness mean? Uh, licentiousness is basically uh, a license to sin and do whatever you want to. Okay. I am, I am free to do, like I'm not under the law. I can do whatever I want to. Well, I believe in it's Jesus. It's the continuing sin so that grace may abound. Yeah. All right, so tracing a biblical theology of the gospel. The word for gospel in Greek, evangelion, 
closely related uh, to the verb form uh, evangelizo. <laughs> I don't know how you say that. <laughs> I was going to go with some sort of like, never mind, uh, which is often translated as to bring or preach the good news. Uh, it's where we get the word evangelize, right? We're, we're going to uh, we're going to gospelize someone. We're going to proclaim the gospel, proclaim good news to them. To understand how the New Testament authors used and understood these terms, we must first understand how these words were used in the Old Testament. Where would you guess in the first is the first place that the noun form evangelion or the verb form to evangelize occurs in the entire Old Testament? In its Greek translation. Remember, by the time Jesus comes, they have the Septuagint. So most of what they would have had in sort of the everyday language of the Bible would have been in Greek. So uh, thinking where that would have come from. The surprising answer is 1 Samuel 33. Uh, this chapter, along with another chapter in the book of 2 Samuel, begin to inform our understanding of the term gospel. So 1 Samuel 31, verse 6 through 10. Thus Saul died and his three sons, his armor bearer and all his men. And on the same day, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. The Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to, and here it is, carry the good news. <laughs> to evangelize to the house of the idols and the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall in Beth Sharon. Interesting first usage of this word, is it not? 2 Samuel 18, 19 to 33. We won't take time to read the whole thing. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry the news, evangelize to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said, You are not to evangelia, carry the news today. You may evangelize carry the news another day, but today you shall evangelize. You shall not carry the news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Job. Uh, it's, I can't even tell you how many times it, it's going to pop up in the rest of that. It's just over and over. One, two, three, four, five six seven seven more times that word is going to be used in second samuel uh, what is it we know about biblical exposition and repetition we're meant to take note of it right all right so anyways the uh, the idea is this is carrying good news now it's interesting that uh, is it isn't always good news that's being carried it's not actually the good news which is why we talk about the gospel like anything can be good news if the cubs win it's good news the cubs gospel, the cubs gospel. uh that that is 
nowhere on par with the gospel of Jesus Christ and our salvation, right? This is the gospel, kind of like the Bible is the book. That's what Bible means, book. We call it the book. Uh, it has no parallels. There, there's no news equal to this. Although the terms gospel and preach the gospel are used in First and Second Samuel and other Old Testament texts, the New Testament authors were probably most influenced by the way in which the term was used in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40, 9 through 11. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, evangelize. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, evangelize. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is with him. He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. Evangelize. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news. Evangelize of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Uh, it's interesting. Before we got together tonight, I was going through uh, sermon notes with Josiah. He's preaching for the first time ever this coming Sunday. And was just talking a little bit about uh, preaching preparation and then delivery. And how you have, have some different methods throughout history and you have uh, preachers who would stand up and read from uh, notes or an outline, would read from cards. You had guys like R.C. Sproul who would take a note card, a note card into the pulpit and it would have anywhere five to nine words written on it. Like gospel. Talk about that for a while. <laughs> I mean, he just he basically had you know like a one word thing and then this wealth of information in his brain that he would pour out you're like we're not worthy we're not worthy right uh and then he had guys like jonathan edwards who preaches this masterful sermon sinners in the hands of an angry god and the reason we have it so completely intentionally in his delivery did not read it with uh, affectation in his voice so that those who were hearing wouldn't be uh, motivated or manipulated by his emotion or his presentation but by the words that were spoken so he read in a relatively not it it wouldn't have been quiet because there was no amplification he would have had to say it loud but in a loud way, he reads really straight through sinners in the hands of an angry God. And people are like falling on the floor, repenting. And the first great awakening springs up. Uh, and yet, as we have a chance to declare the glory of God, as, whether it is in front of a congregation or in a small group or just one-on-one, -on -one, I think we need to steer away from manipulation and yet not be afraid of emotional response and passion within it. And the, the example that I used with Josiah is when you really hear good news, uh, 
the thing you find in scripture is where's a mountain? I need to get up on a mountain and shout this. It's not good enough to shout it in the valley. Everybody needs to hear this. And what do we find in these instances of the gospel of evangelizing? Get up on a high mountain. <laughs> shout it out. Be a herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. Be a herald of the good news. Uh, Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, to evangelize to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Uh, and what is the scripture that Jesus stands and reads in the synagogue, closes the scroll and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's that one right there, right? That he kicks off, he inaugurates his uh, evangelistic ministry with this prophecy from Isaiah 61. All right, turning to how the gospels themselves uh, deal with it, we find that the gospel is being preached even at the beginning of the book. So Mark 1, 1 through 4, and 15, 14 to 15. Josiah, you want to read that for us? Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. <clears throat> As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Yeah, so we find it three times in that passage. Luke 2, 8 through 12. In the same region, the shepherds were out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. By the way, our kids are going to memorize this after Christmas or leading up to Christmas this year. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Gospel. Of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Christ the Lord. So there's a challenge in defining the gospel and in tracing biblical theology of the gospel. John Piper states this, the challenge is defining such a common and broad word or phrase like good news or declare good news is to avoid two extremes. One extreme would be to define the Christian gospel so broadly that everything good in the Christian message is called gospel. The other would be to define the Christian gospel so narrowly that the definition cannot do justice to all the uses in the New Testament. Unfortunately, we do not have time to investigate the many facets of the gospel just in this study. I hope that in all that we do, we're actually doing that. We're, we're filling out the full picture of the gospel. The gospel message includes many glorious realities. Uh, there are many New Testament texts that have much to say about the biblical scope of the gospel. We'll look at just two more passages concerning the gospel from the letters to the Corinthians. These two passages provide foundational descriptions about what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I received 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he was that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And second second Corinthians four, one through six, therefore, having received his ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, unhindered, unhanded, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tampering with God's word. Actually, I think the cunning falls into what we were just talking about in emotional manipulation. Um, But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel, our good news, is veiled, it's only veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in all our study of what the gospel is, we must not forget the highest good of the gospel. John Piper again, in the last chapter, we unfolded the broader biblical meaning of the Christian gospel, which included the existence of the living God in his coming into history with imperial authority over all things as the long-awaited king of Israel, Lord of the universe. This king was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He fulfilled the Old Testament expectations of the son of David, died for our sins, was buried, rose again triumphant over Satan, death, and hell. He promised his own spirit to be with us and to help us. On the basis of his death and resurrection, the gospel promises a great salvation, eventually healing from disease and liberation from oppression, peace with God and others who believe. Justification apart from works of the law, forgiveness of sins, transformation into the image of Christ, eternal life, and global inclusion of all people from all nations in this salvation. But the point was made that the first and greatest good of the gospel is not included in the array of gospel gifts. My burden in this book has been to make clear, as clear as I can, and preach that preachers can preach of these great aspects of the gospel, yet never take people to the goal of the gospel. What makes all events of Good Friday and Easter and all the promises they secure good news is that they lead us to God. Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3, 18. When we get there, it is God himself who will satisfy our souls forever. Everything else in the gospel is meant to display God's glory and remove every obstacle in him, such as his wrath, and in us, such as our rebellion, so that we can enjoy him forever. God is the gospel. That is, he is what makes the good news good. Nothing less can make the gospel good news. God is the final and highest gift that makes the good news good. Surprisingly, John Piper entitled that book, God is the Gospel. (laughs) So God will grant his people his final and highest gift when he returns to take us to be with him forever. Lesson 12. Yes, I am coming quickly. As way of introduction throughout this course, we have been plotting our way through the storyline of the Bible, the story that the Bible 
tells can seem at times a very distant story. It's a story that's removed from us, not only by geographical distance, it happened on the other side of the world from us, but also generations of history and by culture and language. We can look at just uh, the time in which it is going on and go, that's so far from us, how can we relate today? We look at cultural differences and say, in light of our cultural depravity today, what on earth could the Bible, what could the gospel have to offer? Is it relevant for today? Is there a story to tell? In this lesson, we're going to begin by reviewing the biblical story, tracing its beginning through to its present day expression in the life of the church. Then we'll consider what it's still, what still remains in the story and how the story will end. We'll conclude by considering in broad strokes how to apply biblical theology to our lives. And we'll trace the biblical theology of a new creation. Creation, sin, and Israel. Let's start there. As we've seen through the course almost of this course, almost of the biblical, we're missing a word here. Almost all of the biblical theological themes find their roots in Genesis 1 through 3. We won't be missing it next time. Almost all saved. Of those chapters, the following passage might be most important. Somebody want to read Genesis 1, 26 through 29 for us. David, got it. Go. Whoa. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and of the nope, of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. Alright, so God creates God sets man in the midst of his creation. God tasks man with dominion over his creation. He says to him, all of this is yours. Take dominion, subdue it. But tracing this line of biblical theology, what was God's purpose and plan right from that first step? Putting his glory on display, right? Do this in such a way that demonstrates my glory. All right. Almost as soon as God has commissioned Adam and Eve, the serpent intervenes and attempts to thwart God's design. Consider again the serpent's interaction with Eve in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the garden, the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open, knowing good and evil. We know the rest of the story that they would fall into sin almost immediately. Kind of depressing. The immediate effect of Adam and Eve's sin is a break in their fellowship with God. They hide themselves from God. They cover themselves from God. 
and a pollution of the world in which they lived, a world that they were called to subdue and exercise their dominion in for the glory of God and the sake of his name. Yet in his mercy, God does not immediately destroy what he has made. Even in the flood, he preserves man and the rest of creation. He initiates a plan by which his purposes will be accomplished. So Satan does not have the power to thwart God's plan. Humanity does not have the power to thwart God's plan. Genesis 9, they get off of the ark. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and said to his sons, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What was the command God gave to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply, right? Same, the same plan. We, we haven't changed. Uh, then he calls a family to himself. Uh, we have the Abrahamic covenant as he makes a covenant with Abraham and his family. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and, to your kindred, and your kindred, from your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, dishonor those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right For Abraham's descendants, God called out a people for himself from Egypt. The nation was given the commission that Adam and Noah and Abraham were given. Their mandate was expressed perhaps most clearly in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. So if somebody want to read for us Exodus 19, 3 through 6, we'll just read part of that. While Moses went up to God, the Lord... The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to, my, to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel find that again echoed Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 now O Israel listen to the statutes the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live go in and take possession of the land that the Lord the God of your fathers is giving you uh, the idea is if you are faithful if you obey God will bless you God will give you the fullness of what he has promised Deuteronomy 26 17 through 19 you have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will always walk in his ways. You'll keep his statutes, his commands, and his rules. You'll obey his voice. Uh, do this and be a holy people unto the Lord is how he's going to wrap that up. Deuteronomy 28, 9 through 10. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep his commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, all the people of earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. Deuteronomy 33, 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, a shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. So what were God's intentions for the people of Israel? Well, it was to make them a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, after bringing Israel out of Egypt, remember they've been in captivity there, brings them into the promised land and we study in this course how israel was eventually judged by god and removed from the land he, he said i'm going to plant you in this land forever and then they go to the land and they mess up 
and then he yanks him out. You get it's interesting. Uh, was God not keeping his word? Right? Is there unfaithfulness on God's part in light of their unfaithfulness? The answer is no. No, <laughs> no thank you. Uh, just as Cain was driven away from God's provisions, and yet God uh, from the beginning had marked him out for that. It is clear that in sending Israel into exile, God is still thinking of his worldwide reputation. Keep in mind, it is exile. Uh, from the time of the exile until the, oh man, what is it? Late 1940s, early 1950s, I don't remember the exact date. Uh, the Jewish people had no homeland that they owned. It was only after World War II that the Jews... Uh, reclaimed and established the nation of Israel. 1947. There you go. Uh, so much so that a few hundred years of pastors, when anytime they talked about the Bible's promise, I will bring you back and restore this land to you, said this is only only figurative because this can never happen. <laughs> and then it happened in like a week. Like it was just super fast. Uh, now, that nation is a secular nation. That is not the nation of Israel that we know from Scripture. It's good to keep that clear. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 22 to 28. The next generation, your children who rise up after you, the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of the land, the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown, nothing grown, where no plants sprout, overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah. They'll say the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to the land? What caused the heat of his great anger? And the people will say it's because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, they'll point to this and say the Lord has uprooted them in his anger and his fury, his great wrath. He's cast them into another land. Yet we know that the purpose of that was so that they might be brought back. Even now, the Jewish people have been uh, cast out from the presence of God that the Gentiles might be included. Salvation history. God created the heavens and the earth in order to display his glory. Fill in the blank there is glory. Humans, as the principle of God's creation, were given the capacity to consciously enjoy and reflect God's glory. God intended to spread his glory. Evidently, glory is one you'll get good at writing. Uh, through them to fill the whole earth, these humans, though doubted God's provision and word, disrupted God's design by sinning and threatened to obscure the, surprise, glory of God instead of reflecting it. God, however, re-engaged the world by entering into glory. covenants oh. with Noah, Abraham, and Israel. You were so close, so close. And we've been invited into the covenants that we might display his. Glory. Oh, so good. All right. The, <laughs> the fullness of time in the future. Israel broke their covenant with God, and yet God still promised restoration. His plans will go forward. His plans will succeed. Oh, man, that's good news for us. After hundreds of years of exile and then bondage, in the fullness of time, God sent his son to fulfill the promise of Israel. Uh, just a couple passages here. Matthew 1, 
20 to 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. She'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke 2, 25 to 32 uh, is the story of uh, Simeon, the one who is waiting again in the temple, and they bring Jesus uh, and he says, let me depart for I've seen your salvation. You've prepared the presence of all people, a light for revelation of the Gentiles, a glory to your people, Israel. Uh, Galatians chapter four, verses four and five. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might be received, receive the adoption as sons. And Ephesians one, seven through 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in the wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. We are a new people of God, and it consists of those who are in Christ, no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor. It is those who are in Christ. By believing upon him, we are united to him in his death and resurrection. But how marvelous is it that we are used as instruments of righteousness? Just consider that. That not only does God declare this gospel, declare this good news to undeserving sinners, but then he takes undeserving sinners and uses them to declare this gospel, this good news. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, I remember as a kid hearing the Great Commission just again and again, and, and the big thrust was go. Uh, you'd go to some youth conference, and it's go, and we're going to do this, and we're going to go, and you know, there's all the excitement attached to that. Like, that is, man, that's the fire that drives us. No, that's the car that drives us. The fire that drives the car is Jesus says, I'm the Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, because he was faithful even unto death, God has highly exalted him, giving him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, again, we put the emphasis on the wrong word. We thought Jesus was a magic word. And if you said it at the end of a prayer, or you said it passionately enough, then God would do magic for you. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, get in your car. Right? Does that make sense? Like, it's so much better. All right. Anyways, there you go. Having traced the major contours of salvation history, we are now in position to ask a crucial question. So where are we now in the biblical story? Where, where do we find ourselves in our day, in our age? And that's the question we're going to attempt to answer in about five minutes after we take a little break.
All right. So where are we at in the biblical story? The story that the Bible tells is a big and is big enough to envelop all of human history. It is properly called a meta narrative because it is the story that explains all of human life, existence, the history. Biblical story embraces the present day and all the time remaining before the second coming of Jesus. We are now in a period of salvation history that gets described in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Somebody want to read that lengthy section for us. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the... For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the, the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. All right, so in addition to this passage, theologians have typically pointed to two more passages to explain why the Lord has delayed in his return. So we're, we're in some sort of final time in these last days, right? What gets described as the last days. Uh, and yet it's not the last day because the last day is going to be fairly dramatic, right? Uh, things melting out of the sky like that. I think that's going to leave a mark. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Second uh, Peter asked the question, okay, so if God previously destroyed the world through flood, and right now it's being stored up for fire, what kind of life should we live? That, that's a better question than what's it going to look like? When's it going to happen? How's it going to happen? Uh, better question over things we don't have control over is to say okay so what kind of life as a christian man as a christian woman as a christian family as a christian church ought we to live living in a way that hastens that day that points towards that day that points towards faith in christ revelation 5 9 through 10 and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain by your blood you ransomed people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, this is not a class 
about the events immediately preceding the return of Christ. I, just like when we went through the book of Revelation as a church, um, I don't know, whenever we did that, almost two years ago, I think, um, at the start of COVID and shutdowns and fear. And uh, we had some really disappointed people that we didn't basically <coughs> get the end times charts out and say, <clears throat> <clears throat> this is what it's going to look like. I'm just going to choke to death here. <clears throat> but instead said, how should we then live? All right. <clears throat> so <clears throat> new dictionary of biblical theology. Man, my voice is really good all of a sudden. <clears throat> yeah, I got some. There we go. In contrast with cynical views of history, which hold that the universe is locked into a cycle of endless repetitions, special divine revelation led the Hebrews to see <coughs> history as moving towards a future goal. Biblical eschatology, the end things, may be defined as the direction and goal of God's active covenant faithfulness in and for his created order. It is Trinitarian in shape. It is Christocentric in focus, creation-affirming, future-oriented, describing the way God's good purposes in history correspond to God's ultimate reality. Despite differences in detail, there is general agreement about several foundational matters concerning last times. That's almost shocking. <laughs> now, we would all agree on something, and yet isn't our day and age even today just sort of like really intrigued almost obsessed with it right i very rarely watch broadcast television anymore you can go to bank on it at least once a year they're going to have some special on nostradamus and his predictions of the end and here's what it could mean and there'll be helicopters blowing stuff up and you know all kinds of all kinds of end time things there's a, a worldwide fascination with it uh, here's the things that Christians can agree on. The day of the Lord will be unexpected and sudden. The coming of the Lord will be preceded by tribulation. And the coming of the Lord will be preceded by an opponent, most commonly referred to as the Antichrist. Now, how exactly that works? What's the timing uh, associated with that? Well, now we're all over the map, right? Just all over. Here's our doctrinal statement on the return of Christ. The consummation of all things includes the visible, personal, and glorious return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the translation of those alive in Christ, the judgment of the just and the unjust, and the fulfillment of Christ's kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. In the consummation, Satan with his host and all those outside of Christ are finally separate, separated from the benevolent presence of God, enduring eternal punishment from the righteous uh, but the righteous in glorious bodies shall live and reign with him forever married to christ as his bride the church will be in the presence of god forever serving him and giving him unending praise and glory then shall the eager expectation of christians be fulfilled and the whole earth shall proclaim the glory of god who makes all things new all right, so one significant difference between theologians is how they interpret interpret the millennium of 
Revelation 20. Don't laugh at me, Avery. I will call out bears to come and attack you. <laughs> Interpret. Interpret. <laughs> it's gonna get it's gonna get ugly guys it's gonna get ugly aiden would you read for us revelation 20 1 through 10 i will <clears throat> then i saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and he seized the dragon the ancient serpent who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Oh, sorry, I read that a little weird. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. <clears throat> and I also, and I saw, nope, sorry, also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years or when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, so we're talking about this millennium, this thousand-year period, and there's three main theories that get batted around. Somebody give me one of them doesn't have to mean you believe it just give me pre pre yeah all right so what is what is pre millennialism now you got me messed up and i can't say it christ the second coming before this thousand years yeah so jesus comes back before this thousand years okay what's post millennialism after yeah that <clears throat> the millennium will come through the success of the gospel, gradually converting the world, ushering in a golden age of the church after a long period of peace and righteousness. There will be an outbreak of evil and Christ will come in person to win the victory. Uh, what is amillennialism? Yeah. Yeah, basically, uh, ah means not. So what it's basically saying is there's not an actual millennium, that it's symbolic, and it's symbolic of the church age in which we live. It's right now. So there isn't actually going to be an earthly millennial reign. Rather, the second coming uh, will usher in the final state of the new heavens and the new earth. So I don't have a whole lot of experience with all of this. Because, but I did watch the evening of Esther. 
Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, if you haven't watched that, An Evening of Eschatology, and oh man, I can't even remember the guys who are in it now. I don't, I don't know those guys, but I know John Piper is the narrator or the, what do you call The moderator, moderator for it, yeah. Yeah. Those three guys were way smart. Um, <laughs> you kind of look like the other guy. The, uh, but the amillennialism, it sounded more like they, less symbolic, well, at least for that guy, and more of, he believed rain but it's in heaven like Christ it's now but it's it's a heavenly thing going on currently yeah yeah but it's good stuff yeah really interesting and it the thing I liked about that and again if you haven't if you haven't seen it you should you should track her down um, is you have three very very solid biblical expositors who hold three different positions on this and it's fine. <laughs> it's, in fact, it's good and it's challenging. So regardless of where one stands on the millennium, what you understand to be true about it, uh, everyone is agreed that Jesus will judge the world. Like, let's, let's focus on what we know to be true. Jesus will judge the world. Uh, Matthew 13, 41 to 43, the Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom, all the causes of sin and all the lawbreakers will throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Who let he who has ears let him hear. Uh, just an interesting thought: the the whole idea of a rapture, where uh, Christians are just sort of like sucked up out of the world, uh, left behind, if you will, is is the rest of the world. Uh, that didn't show up until the end of the 19th century, around the, the late 1800s. And so it, it's a relatively new theological idea. And it's interesting when you look at much of what the scripture has to say. Uh, two are walking in the field, one is taken and one is left. Uh, two people laying in a bed, one is taken and one is left. Uh, here, the angels come. And they gather out of the kingdom, not the Christians, but all the causes of sin and lawbreakers. Like, oftentimes, it's the wicked who are taken, not all the really, really good people who leave their clothes behind. Because evidently, y'all go to heaven naked. All right. Just a, just a thought. Just something to think about the ultimate christian hope however is not simply a heaven apart from earth our hope is not for disembodied evidently naked bliss rather we are waiting for the day when creation itself will be freed from bondage to decay romans 8 21 we're waiting for heaven to descend to earth and for the earth to be remade we will not spend eternity just floating on clouds like uh little diaper-wearing chubby babies playing harps. Uh, we will have new resurrected bodies. We will feast with the Lord. We will dwell in a city. We will enjoy all the pleasures of an earth that is devoid of sin and full of righteousness. Our greatest pleasure will be to see the unobstructed glory of Jesus. That is the great Christian hope. We will see him as he is, and so will everyone else. Salvation history. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the king in the line of David to be a king over a new covenant. Covenant is your fill in the blank there. Uh, 
a new covenant people by sharing in his atoning death and triumphant resurrection. The church is empowered to spread the knowledge of the glory, glory of God throughout the world by making disciples and living in a new spirit-filled community. We are now witnessing the spread of the gospel among the nations. God is filling the earth with his glory and he is redeeming people from every tribe and tongue. One day soon, Jesus will return to judge the world and claim his own. God will then remake the world. His people will dwell in the new earth with him forever. All right, inhabiting the biblical story. Throughout this class, direct and immediate application has been sparse. We've just sort of talked, skimming the surface, as you will, over some of these issues. Uh, It's intentional. It may not always be easy to see how biblical theology is practical, relevant, or helpful in the life of faith. However, a solid grounding in the biblical story and a persuasion of its truthfulness is a powerful anchoring for the soul. When biblical theology is understood, when the Bible, when biblical story envelops your life, when the ambition of your life aligns with God's purposes in history, transformation happens. Richard Bauckham says this, to accept the authority of this biblical story is to enter, is to enter it and inhabit it. It is to live in the world as the world is portrayed in this story. It is to let this story define our identity and our relationship to God and to others. The Bible's narrative does not simply require assent. Like all stories, it draws us into the world, engaging us imaginatively, allows us at our own pace to grow accustomed to it. But to accept the Bible's meta narrative as authoritative is to privilege it above all other stories. It is to find our own identity as characters in that story, characters whose lives are and is yet untold part of that story. Uh, So much so is that true that uh, there's a lot of pastors and teachers nowadays who really don't like the word story at all, uh, simply because many uh, children sort of grow accustomed to hearing the word story and going, well, that's not true. The, the stories that we tell children in general aren't true. And yet the Bible is true. So they're like, don't say that it's a story because then they'll have this association. Well, it's not, it's not true. Uh, so call it a narrative. Call it, you know, something like that. Uh, it's an important thought, uh, but it's, it's semantics. So... I try and use the word narrative a bit more, but I'm still going to say story. Why? Because there are true stories. (laughs) True story is a little bit difficult because uh, I was raised, as was Corrine over there, in the 80s generation, and which your generation is just trying to reclaim. So I guess, you know, we had a good thing. Uh, But there, there were a whole bunch of uh, made-for-TV true stories, only when you boil it down, not so true, right? We made up giant portions of this story. Uh, this is one of the dangers with made-for-TV gospel stories like, the name of it just popped out of my head. What, what's the name? The Chosen, the Chosen. yeah, uh, which has a lot of really solid biblical representation, 
It also has a lot of imagination that is infused into it. Uh, and there are, there are aspects of it that I really not only enjoy, but I think are genuinely helpful to Christians. That there's a humanity that comes across in living, breathing human beings acting out a true story that I think it, it has everybody watched any of the chosen you've seen it everybody's seen the first episode uh, the interaction with Mary Magdalene and Jesus as it, it's sort of the big reveal at the end that Jesus knows her story like that his words were actually uh, part of her consciousness before she ever gets to him uh, and he starts speaking those words in a way that is moving. It, it, is, it is emotionally gripping because there's a humanity to Christ's love for people that, in my, in my opinion, is invaluable to believers as they read the scripture. And yet dangerous because we are imagining what those moments are like. We're imagining those conversations and then potentially confusing them with the actual text of scripture, which is why we haven't promoted it at all here. <clears throat> Even when controversy has arised over it, uh, we've stayed out of that fray because we're just not pointing to it. True and genuine believers are going to be blessed and encouraged by it. Uh, confused people are probably going to leave more confused. That's just my guess. Uh, and yet, there it is. Even in telling the true story of the Bible, we are used to a day and age where, well, not all of it's true, you know. And how many people look at the Genesis narrative and go, well, I mean, not all of it's true, clearly. Creation didn't happen like that. Evolution clearly is how we got from A to B, not what's given us in there. But, you know, it's got some good stuff in there. True story. All right, there's my true story spiel. <clears throat> Notice the effect of the biblical story that it has upon Paul's life and witness. Uh, looking at Acts 26. Again, at the end of Acts, Paul sort of giving a defense of his life, telling of his true story. Therefore, King Agrippa, verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their righteousness. For this reason, the Jews seized me in their temple. They tried to kill me to this day. I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what comes, but what the prophets and Moses would say would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now we read earlier 
that Paul said, here's what my whole ministry has been, is to call Gentiles to the obedience of faith. And so he's crafting his argument. Paul, in such a short, short time, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Yes. <laughs> Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Well, except for these chains. <laughs> I, just, I absolutely love Paul's life, his ministry, his approach to his life, his value of his life is all predicated upon what he believes to be true about this gospel thread of biblical theology that he has traced from his Jewish roots up into his day. All right. <clears throat> Any comments on that? There's a question here. What, what's the relationship between Paul's biblical theology and his life? Is biblical theology spiritually edifying or merely just an academic exercise? I think we, we all at this point, I mean, you've, you've set through, this is the second uh, iteration of this biblical theology class. You came back for the second one. It's practical to your life. But how so? How, how is knowing some of this practical? Uh, how is it practical to Paul? How is it practical to us? the the meta narrative as it is uh, throughout all of history to know where we fit into it to know how uh, not only just how we fit into it but how all of it has affected us on a personal level um, I don't want to necessarily use the word apply because I think that it doesn't do it justice but I will just for the sake of, of, of time and trying to find another word but in the application of how this meta narrative fits into our lives affects how we see and view the scripture in light and how we um, rightly handle God's word and therefore how we take what we read, applying it to our own lives and then sharing it in the light of this whole meta narrative salvation history towards us and the rest of the world that we both by word and deed. Good. Yep. Anybody else want to add to that? I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. Hey, thanks, Tony. <laughs> I think it's cool, like the, the threads, you know, seeing all the threads go through. <clears throat> like, I've never seen, like, I've never seen these connections. You know, nobody's ever gone into these depths to show these connections in, you know, yeah. like, you just don't have time. You can't, you can't, you, you only do so much in a sermon. Yeah. Yeah. Like, to go through and see all of this, it's, on that note, it ends up being worship. I mean, yeah, yeah. exactly. Good. On on that note, more than anything, by seeing this carefully crafted throughout all of not just a book, but literally throughout an entire meta narrative of actual history, God's glory being put on display through all of this, making those threads brings it such a large, greater. I mean, we're living in a in this narrow lens view of our lives that we get by looking at it in this light, we get a greater glimpse of the wide angle lens that God sees through in His just glory. Yeah, yeah. Right on. I think to answer our question that we were asked with, what's the relationship between 
called biblical theology in his life is Paul has lived a life as a Pharisee. Mm. And so biblical theology is Paul's identity. Like that's, that's his one thing. Yeah. And so when coming before these guys, it applies to his life in such a way where he's like, I live my life for this. Like this is what I've been called to because he had to study like since he was a child because he called himself like a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like mm-hmm. he's the best one, which is true, but he has the gospel. And so how that translates to us is like we are also called to give the gospel. Like that's our whole thing. So we better know our biblical theology or you miss it. Yeah. Yeah. If we're not careful when even relatively simple secular arguments against God are made, and one of the most common that you're going to hear is not that Jesus didn't exist, because um, almost every good secular uh, historian says there's overwhelming evidence that some guy named Jesus lived. He, He was a Jewish rabbi. He was crucified. It's very well attested to in history. That's not the argument. The argument is, my kid has cancer. Uh, There was just a mass shooting. Uh, This horrible thing has happened. How can a good God allow that to happen? How could I believe in that type of God? And Paul says, ha ha, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, persecuted, (laughs) you know, just on and on and on and on. But here's what I'm convinced of, and and Aiden pointed to it here. Uh, Being the Pharisee of Pharisees uh, in an occupied time, all that they had was their Jewish traditions and the covenant promises, right? We, We have these promises from God. We keep these traditions, and therefore we are identified as God's people. We're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting, right? Just this giant waiting game. And he goes, Jesus is the one that we're waiting for. All of the Old Testament attests to it. Uh, the signs and wonders and the Holy Spirit is testifying to it now. My whole life stands and falls on Jesus. Therefore, I will gladly give my life for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. My whole ministry stands and falls upon the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It absolutely shapes his life. And it, it's exactly what Tony said. If we get this theology right, it leads to doxology. It, worship is what comes flying out of Paul. How many times is Paul just writing in these letters? He's making an argument. People have, have wrongly thought about something. That they've had some misinterpretation. And he gets to the end of making his argument and goes, Oh, the depths of the riches and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. To God be the glory. All right. Chapter eight. Let's go. Here we go. You know, let's jump right back in. Uh, Oh, the heights and depths. What can separate us from the love of God? Can persecution or sword or famine or even death? Not even close. Right? It's, it is doxology flowing from a right theology. And Man, when we get that, it transforms our ministry. It transforms our lives. I mean, this is, this is intentionally school of ministry because those difficult days lie in front of all of us. 
we need more than ever in those moments to stand with Paul and just lean over and gaze into the truth of the gospel. They, this, not, not just the gospel as a moment in time uh, in 33 AD, but the gospel as good news from the beginning to the end of the scripture. This is always God's plan. And in the fullness of time, it's going to be even greater than we thought. All right, let's go. <laughs> uh, that's when you get guys like Jim Elliott saying, he's no fool who gives up what he can't keep to get that which he can't lose. It's better. Okay. All of that was my way of saying, we're probably not getting done, and we'll have to make a little video tag on the end of this. <clears throat> All right. So similarly to Richard Buckham's quote that we said a little while ago, P.E. Statterweight. How would you like to have that name in kindergarten? Satterthwaite. Maybe you just flick your tongue out a couple times and it comes out perfect. Uh, argues that we can find meaning in life if we locate ourselves in the continuing story of, that the Bible tells. Here's what he says. The Bible account gives us a narrative framework, a continuing story in which we can, if we will, locate ourselves and thereby find meaning in life. Like the speakers in Nehemiah 9, we may feel dissatisfaction that the end of the narrative still seems far off. But in the light of Jesus' resurrection, we have better grounds <clears throat> than they for confidence that the narrative will in due course end triumphantly. So when it says we locate ourselves in the story, here's what it does not mean. It does not mean we read some Old Testament account, just to use the cliche of David versus Goliath, and then we find ourselves get some stones. You know, I mean, it, it makes for great preaching fodder. Uh, and there's, there's tons of it on the internet. <clears throat> Guys like Stephen Furtick shouting out, when everybody's against you, when it, when it feels like the whole world is coming against you like Goliath, take courage. Because if Goliath is coming against you, that makes you David! And everybody shouts it and leaves triumphant. <clears throat> As opposed to looking to Christ, who's the greater David. Now, we are, we are called to boldness and faith and action. Uh, so don't, let, let's, let's not just permanently dismiss those things into the realm of, well, Jesus is the better mat, so I'll just sit on the couch. <laughs> it's, our couch even has the little electric, like your feet go up right <laughs> which is interesting because then you have to go to get your feet down it takes a long time it's a good analogy for a lot of christians who have so kicked back well i'm just gonna let go and let god by the way that phrase came from a cult that was located in michigan uh about a hundred years ago uh that that's not a that's not a christian saying let go and let god it was a, a cult that said that uh, they've completely let go and God goes, I thought I called you to be part of this army. What's up, dude? <laughs> then it takes forever like to get their feet back on the ground and get them moving. Uh, so we're not talking of locating ourselves in the story like that. 
we're locating ourselves on the timeline of biblical theology. Uh, we're in this period of waiting right here. Christ has been revealed. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. His church has been established. Christ is building his church. Uh, he will triumph in the end. We don't see it yet, so we're going to be faithful right in the middle. Okay. Ironic that the next words written on the page are, we should pause at this point. <laughs> mention a very important qualification several times during this class we've talked about god's action in history using language such as this is what happened and god responded in this way or god's purpose will finally be realized in the church so here's another good one this does not imply that god is constantly being frustrated in his purposes and then making new attempts to fulfill his plan like he called one church to do it but they didn't do it and so they had a church split, and now these guys are the ones who are really going to pull it off. Whoops, they didn't. Church split. And now these are the ones who are really going to do it. The cross of Jesus Christ is not God's plan B for the earth. It's not even a plan that God designed after the fall of Adam and Eve. We who believe were chosen, Ephesians 1, 4 says, before the foundations of the world. 1 Peter 1.20 makes it clear that Christ as the Lamb of God was foreknown before the foundations of the world. Uh, by the way, the only reason for him to be known as the Lamb of God is if sacrifice and redemption was already necessary and needed. Right? <clears throat> but he was manifest in these last times for our sake. Names were written in the book of life of the Lamb, that was slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, Revelation 17. Before God created anything, it was his intention to glorify his mercy in, his death of, in the death of his son and the redemption of people. Uh, by the way, you could also say to glorify uh, his justice in the right judging of the wicked for all eternity. Like those two things have to go hand in hand. The death of his son was predestined to take place, Acts 2 and Acts 4 says. This should inspire great confidence in God and his purposes. The story of human existence and, the, and history has already been written in the wisdom, power, and love of God. It is this rock-solid confidence that assures us that our gospel labor, our gospel work is not in vain. One day soon, the Lord Jesus will return to claim his own. And mind-blowingly, he will use us to help call some of those as his own. We don't, we don't have the power to save or heal or deliver. Jesus does all of that. And yet he uses us as instruments, as Paulson said, instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. Uh, Paulson is a pretty great biblical counselor who passed away last year. All right, so why is that an important qualification to make? What would be lost if God was not completely sovereign in biblical theology? There's a whole paragraph here, and I'm just going to say it in one word. Everything. <laughs> you can't have a story from beginning to end that has one solid thread. What you, what you would have is a story that goes from here to here, and then man's sin and Satan's cunning, cunning cut the story off, and then we tied a knot on it, but it had to detour over here. And then it kind of jumps around the corner, and then sin and Satan cuts it off again. We would have a knotted, twisted rope that we have strung so poorly together 
in some blind hope that God's going to work it all out. If God is not sovereign, then Romans 8.28 and following needs to be removed from your Bible. It doesn't fit. You cannot have a God who says, I will work all things together for good. Maybe, as long as everybody does their part, yeah. it, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. All right. All of redemptive history from Adam and Eve until the final judgment is only infinitesimally small period of time when compared to the endless ages we will enjoy in the presence of God. I had to read the word infinitesimally after looking at the beginning of that sentence after redemptive history with Adam and Eve. Well, I wanted to say reproductive history with Adam and Eve. <laughs> and then I'm like, I can't believe I even got that other word out. And I was so, I started laughing. <laughs> I'm like, I got to, they're just going to think I'm crazy if I don't say why I'm laughing. Uh, <laughs> we are, we are here for a short period of time. Uh, humanity has been a relatively short period of time and we will be with the Lord forever. It's not even this, it's this, right? It, it is eternity future. Therefore, when we think about how God is going to glorify himself, we must consider how he will glorify himself in the infinitely large period of time from the final judgment to the new heavens and the new earth and on and on and on and on. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, and that kind of cool, and think about that, the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. John Piper. Notice how Paul piles up words to make a deep and lasting impression on our hearts. God's settled purpose is to be gracious to those who are in Christ Jesus. Unless we miss the sweetness and gentleness and gladness of the word grace, he adds the word in kindness towards us. Now ask yourself this question. If there were one person in all the universe who benefits the, in all the universe, the benefits of whose kindness you could choose, who would it be? Would it not be God? You, you might be able to think of a thousand things that would be kindness to you, but then your imagination would run out. But God's imagination will never run out. And it makes this clear as Paul uses the word riches. God's purpose is to spend the riches of his grace in kindness on us. And then to assist our faltering imagination, he adds the word immeasurable or surpassing or incomparable. Biblical history, salvation history. The biblical story has been preserved for us in the Bible, is meant to be studied, appreciated, and inhabited, lived in for the glory of God and the joy of his people. All right, just for the sake of time, we're going to leave her there. It just seems our hearts should just say amen to that. Like, man, God, let it be so. Dang. Dang, that's good. Yeah, excellent use of the props.
Good. Let's just close in prayer. God, our hearts are rightly humbled and admonished in light of your great kindness towards us, in light of the riches of heaven poured out at Christ's expense for our benefit. Lord, we know that in the end of all things, you're going to pull that thread of salvation history and you are going to glorify yourself in this earth. It will so cover the earth that it will be like the waters covering the sea. It's just depths upon depths of the glory of God on display for all eternity. Yet our hearts can barely comprehend the fact, Lord, that we are benefactors of that. We receive the benefit of that amazing grace. We are adopted into that chosen covenant family. We are made heirs of that promise. And so our hearts rightly bow before you. We rightly say, Lord, who am I? Who's my family? That you would take notice of me. The son of man that you would care for him. And yet, oh God, your great love in salvation has been so marvelously put on display that even our weak minds and hearts see it. So we pray, oh God, open our eyes even more. Open our hearts even more. Give us greater capacity to know and understand the depths of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God, the grace that has been lavished upon us. Lord, seal the cracks of these earthen vessels that hold immeasurable, glorious good news. Make us ambassadors of that gospel, we pray. Amen.